Caroline and I are very happy to get to be with you all. Uh, even in the last year as I was at Grace Bible, she almost never got to come with me because she always had responsibilities with the children there. So it may have been several years since she's been here. I have to admit, it makes me feel pretty old to see people with kid, that we did the pre-marriage counseling for who now have kids who seem about the age they were when we did the pre-marriage counseling 20-something years ago. But it's also a great joy to see how the Lord has strengthened and preserved so many people in faith and has blessed this church so much. The church we attend now near Charlotte is not as big as you are. And uh, it's wonderful just to see the health of this body, and we pray for you all, and uh, just so much thank God for you. Um, I, as I thought about today, I was thinking, do I have any Father's Day sermons? And I really couldn't think of one, but you can make anything, connect anything in the Bible if you try hard enough, especially fatherhood. And the passage that came to my mind that really links father to the text from which I'm going to be preaching is in Psalm 103, verse 13, the psalmist says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And so the passage we're going to look at today is in Luke chapter 7. And it's a very sweet, beautiful, tender story. It's one from which Spurgeon preached many, many times. And it's a story of a woman who was forgiven much, who thus loved Jesus very much. And some of the application I see of this in my own life is how do I grow in my love for God? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How can I grow out of sometimes my lack of concern for what appear to be little sins compared to all the big sins all the other people commit? But how do I grow in my desire to serve Christ? How do I grow in my desire to eradicate sin? And it's really in the phrase from the passage is, as we understand his compassion, his grace, his mercy in forgiving us, that should be transforming. And in the case of this woman, she did something for Jesus, something beautiful for Jesus, not in order to gain forgiveness, not in order to win his love, but as a response to his love. And and that would be my hope for us as well. Uh, The context in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 6, there are certain themes that Luke emphasizes, and one is that Jesus uh, lifts up the downcast. If you think of in James where it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a theme in Luke's gospel that's emphasized. It comes out in Mary's song, and in terms of what the coming of the Messiah would bring, is that those who were arrogant are going to be brought down. Those who are humble are going to be lifted up. Uh, Jesus is criticized sometimes for spending time with sinners and tax collectors. It's kind of ironic here because it's a Pharisee who invites Jesus over. And I would say that he's actually lowering himself more to eat with the Pharisee than he was when he was eating with the tax collectors and the immoral people. Uh, This passage has similarities. You have a woman who is crying and pouring out ointment. It has similarity to other passages in the other Gospels, but there are unique characteristics that show that this is different from those other stories. And I'm going to kind of work my way through the passage, uh, starting in verse 36. It says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to dine with him. 
And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So you have here, after Jesus has been criticized for eating with tax collectors and immoral people, he's now invited to dinner by a supposedly very, very righteous man, a man, Simon the Pharisee. Now, you even wonder why did Simon invite Jesus to dinner since his folk were critical. Verse 34, right preceding this, he says, the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what is Simon's reason? And in the It doesn't state explicitly, but I think there's enough here that I I could make a suggestion. And that is, the most positive thing I could say is perhaps Simon wonders, since Jesus is doing these miracles, could he be the Messiah? And he wants to get to know Jesus better. And we kind of see that in verse 39. Well, now I've concluded this couldn't be a good guy, couldn't be a prophet, uh, because he doesn't shun women like this. There's another theory I have that may be closer to the truth, and that is that, just to give you, like you have a pro-life ministry, right? And there are pro-life places where women who are considering abortions go. And some of the women go there sincerely seeking help. But you know that people from Planned Parenthood and other groups will sometimes infiltrate places like that, not for the purpose of actually getting help, but to try to uncover dirt to try to catch them in something that they could file a lawsuit or get them in trouble, that kind of thing. We've even had visitors to Grace Bible Church in Escondido or people who would check us out. And they weren't checking us out to hear the gospel. They were checking us out to find something bad they could tell other people about us. Uh, they were investigating, not investigating us in a negative sense rather than investigating the gospel we preach in a more helpful sense. I guess a third example would be If you are a baker, there might be people say, would you please bake a cake with two men on top of it? And they're not really interested in the cake. They're interested in trying to get you in trouble. I tend to think that's the category Simon is. He's invited Jesus over kind of for the purpose of exposing that Jesus isn't really the prophet some of the people think he may be. Now you've wondered, well, then why would Jesus come? Well, he will eat with the very worst of people, even Pharisees apparently. And we're going to see he has a good purpose in this. We will learn later that Simon's hospitality falls short. Later, when in verse 44, as Jesus will point out, the woman who treated him so well, but Simon gave no water, no kiss, no anointing, no greeting. Uh, Simon already by this time has fallen short of ordinary hospitality. And you've been in church long enough, you know, like Jesus washing the disciples' feet, that in those days people were walking around in dusty, filthy streets, you come for dinner. Uh, Your feet are going to be near your food and your neighbor's food. And so the polite thing to do is to wash the feet and to greet. And there's been no warm greeting to Jesus. And later, Simon will be rebuked for that. It'd be like in our culture, somebody comes over, you offer to take their coat and to give them a snack or something to drink. And I don't know if you've ever been invited someplace where you feel like, I'm not sure I'm really welcome here. I'm not sure why they invited me. I don't feel like I'm being very well treated. That's what's happening. 
So while this thing is settling down, I think another thing you understand is how they did banquets back then. You know, we have big groups over sometimes to our house, but you know, they park all down the street. They come inside. We close the doors. The neighbors are kind of aware there's something going on. But in that day, things were much more open. And when there was somebody was having a big party or a banquet, uh, one thing you realize, of course, they're sitting on the ground and their feet are out and they're maybe in a circle or something. But the, the hangers-on in the neighborhood will all just kind of stand around and watch, maybe like kind of the Oscars or something when they're watching the people come in down the red carpet and they're all kind of hanging and maybe hoping to get some food and Jesus is there. And so it's kind of an exciting occasion. So, I mean, in my house, for some woman to come in and, you know, whatever, dump oil on my guest or something would be extraordinary. They'd have to get through a locked door and, you know, whatever, walk and we're sitting at the table. But in this case, they're sitting on the ground and maybe outside in a courtyard or, you know, very accessible. There are probably lots of people around, but then one of these people kind of hanging around watching does this extraordinary thing of, you know, she, she's weeping and she has this vial of perfume. It's like we, we have in, Mar, in John 12 with Mary and you know, she's pouring out the perfume and she's crying and wetting Jesus' feet and all this stuff is going on. And we also know from verse 39 that the woman who's doing this is a notorious sinner, an immoral woman of some kind, a, a gomer, a, a, like Hosea's uh, immoral wife. Now, we also learned in verse 34, which I just read, that Jesus is called a friend of sinners. And so that's illustrating that point. Now, as we move ahead in the text, I'm going to, I think, prove to you that this is not the first time she's ever seen Jesus. I think what's really happened here is she's encountered him before, she's heard the gospel, she's turned to the Lord in faith, she's found forgiveness. And so this scene is not her conversion. This scene is a repentant, believing sinner expressing love to Jesus who has saved her. And what she does is quite amazing. It's courageous. She knows of all the people who are not particularly welcome in the front row at the dinner party, it's going to be her, especially with Simon the Pharisee as the host. Uh, but her love for Christ makes her bold, obviously extraordinarily generous and very valuable perfume. She's passionate in her love for the Lord. She's grateful. Uh, she's just overcome. And it even appears where she planned on anointing his feet with the oil uh, it's her tears that are washing his feet. And now she's using her hair. And, and again, in that culture, your hair as a woman is supposed to be up. You're not a very good woman if your hair is down. And for touching some other man with your hair is something that just culturally is just way out of bounds. And I would have to admit, I don't know about you, but if I were sitting there, I would feel extraordinarily awkward just as a bystander. Like, what is this woman doing? And it's so interesting to see you know, Simon's response is the worst. Jesus is the best. I think I would have been somewhere in between. Like, you know, couldn't she just do something else? This is really, you know, my food's getting cold. Everybody's all kind of upset right now. It's kind of weird. But Jesus permits her to do this. Uh, I remember one time when I was visiting our missionaries in Spain, and you know, the, the Phillips and the Leightons, the Barcelos, and the very first time I think I went there, our church had sent a couple of those families, and this woman comes up to me in church and starts kissing both cheeks. And I wanted to jump out of my skin. My wife wasn't in the room. And what's she doing? Kissing my, just, that's just how you greet there. And, but I, you know, this is worse than that. But Jesus receives it. 
And I think the fact he receives it also is indicating he knows she's doing the right thing. But Simon reacts, we see in verse 39. He has nothing but contempt for her. He's like the Pharisee later in chapter 18. I thank God that I am not a sinner like this tax collector. Uh, Through his pharisaical eyes, his eyes see her so differently than Jesus does. He's caused a disruption. And even this word when he says she is touching him, the word touch there is like the word in 1 Corinthians 7, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. I think there's a sexual connotation. And it reminds me of Eli the priest when Hannah's praying. And Eli, what does Eli think? She's drunk. So he's completely misinterpreted. I think he thinks that this woman is coming on to Jesus in a totally evil way. And when Jesus isn't stopping her, uh, Simon just says, well, if this man were a prophet, and this is just for him, the pharisaical logic is, is unanswerable. If he were a prophet, actually, you don't even need to be a prophet to see what kind of woman this is, right? There she is with the hair and everything. And he would shun her like all good people do. And the fact that he is not shunning her and he even is accepting her attention means that he can't possibly be a prophet. So again, it's like the investigation of the church or the Planned Parenthood. We got, it's like, I've, I've got Jesus pegged now. I've proven that he's no good. And of course, the, the whole irony in this is that he thinks of himself as being a good person, a moral person, a right, righteous person, yet he is a loveless, merciless man with no room for grace in his theology. Has he ever read Psalm 103 or the rest of the Psalms for that matter? And of course, Jesus is going to show, not only is he a prophet, he's much more than a prophet. He's going to show he knows exactly what Simon is thinking. He knows exactly what this woman, not only what she was, but now what she is, something Simon does not see. So before I move on, I want to make some applications to us. And that is, are you tempted to be like Simon? And I confess that I am. I will share a story I'm a bit embarrassed by, but it really illustrates how we as evangelical Christians can be this way. There, many years ago, uh, there was a situation in our church in Escondido where a woman abandoned her husband. And he had, even had, heart, he had been in very bad health, and that was all the more upsetting. She had abandoned her husband. She'd gone with another man. And this is all wrong. It's sinful. And Caroline and I were some touristy area in San Diego, together on a day off, and we run into this woman. And I remember my heart just turned stone cold. And all I did was just glared at her as we walked by. I did not greet her. I I showed no kindness to her. And I didn't even think much about it, but then it got back to me how offended she was at how I had treated her in that moment by not just ignoring her, but giving her the icy stare of condemnation. And uh, that's, I was like Simon. And there can be situations now, I know you guys do wonderful ministry, you're in Balboa Park, where there's some really unusual people that would be like this woman and beyond. And their problem is not their lifestyle, their problem is their lostness. I love what Rosaria Butterfield said when she came from lesbianism to become a believer. She said, I wasn't converted from lesbianism to being a heterosexual, I was converted from unbelief to faith, and then that other stuff takes care of itself. Uh, we had another event at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte where I'm teaching. We had an interesting event. We had a guy named Heath Lambert who's done a lot of writing, and he gave a, we gave a kind of a lecture for the public on the transgender issue. And that was right while well, Charlotte's the place where a couple of years ago all the bathroom bill and protests and everything went on. So 
We learned online that the transgender people wanted to show up at our event, perhaps disrupt it. And we had police there and everything else. Well, Heath got done speaking. We had some people from the transgender bunch in the room. Heath got done speaking. He takes off for an interview, and I'm left to face these people who wanted to talk to somebody. And God gave me grace in that situation to say, okay, there's this towering man who called himself a woman who looked like a gigantic man with women's clothes on and wanted to tell me his story and wanted to interact. And I thought, how can I show grace and kindness to this person? And they'd been, I appreciated this person being polite and not disrupting like they'd threatened to on their Facebook page as kind of a public figure in our area. And there was something happened, and I guess since I told the bad story on myself, I'll tell you the good one, that on the Facebook page, after this person you know, described coming with the crazy evangelicals who don't agree with her, him, said that even though they're crazy, I have to admit they were kind. And that was encouraging. That we didn't give anything up by being kind to someone who was a great sinner, because I'm a great sinner, who is no better than that person is, or the person we met years ago. We can love sinners without approving of their sin. So, Jesus, continuing, seeing and knowing what's in Simon's heart, and knowing what's in this woman's heart, verse 40, then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. This is a very famous parable. And there's some real irony here because I think that Simon invited Jesus over to set Jesus up. And the woman coming, like Simon thought, now I've got him. But the one who got got, And the one who really got set up was not Jesus, it's Simon, isn't it? This is like the parable of the ewe lamb. I'm going to tell you a story. You give me the obvious answer. And it just put the noose around his neck and threw it over the the rope over the tree, and there he went. Uh, and, And Jesus demonstrates in this parable, he knows all about the woman. He knows all about Simon. He knows what Simon was saying to himself. He knows the state of each of their hearts. So what does the parable mean? And I'm sure you've been taught this, that when you look at parables, you want to be careful not to turn them into allegories in which every single detail is given some deep meaning. Usually parables are trying to make one big point. And there's some things in here, if you tried to carry it too far, would actually be wrong uh, in the context. For example, I mean, you have another parable, just as an example, is of God being like the unjust judge where you have to keep knocking and knocking to get justice. It's not saying God is unjust or he doesn't want to listen. The point of the parable is what? Persist in prayer. Uh, not that God is, the only way God is like the unjust judge is in one way, if you keep pleading, he will hear you. Well, here in this parable, uh, you have this man and woman, Simon and the woman, on the one hand, they, they could not be any more different from each other, the Pharisee, the immoral woman. But now Jesus puts them into the same category. They're both debtors. They both owe. And in spite of their gender, social position, and morality. And not only that, 
they're both unable to pay the debt. And you know, if you owe $1,000 or you owe $50,000, if you're unable to pay, you're bankrupt either way, right? Now, I think you also need to understand that in, in that culture, you've got these sums of 500 denarii and 50 denarii. A denarii would be about a day's wage that a laborer who has no money can no more pay 500 than 50. He's, he's in trouble either way. And in their culture, you don't just call 1-800-BANKRUPTCY LAWYER and get out of it. In their culture, you're thrown in jail or even tortured until you repay. So it's a bad thing. I mean, debt may be bad in our culture, but it's really bad in that culture. And so then, then there's, you know, and then in, in the parable, there's a sense in which the person to whom they owe money represents the Lord. And we get that, you know, we... All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Uh, and so we're the people who need forgiving. Now, here is where the parable just goes beyond normal, and that is that when they were unable to repay, next step be to the torturers. No, instead, he graciously forgave them both. Okay, friends, that just doesn't happen, right? It's like if, if you were to get home tomorrow morning and the phone were to ring and it's your mortgage lender saying, we have decided to cancel your debt. And then your car lender would call or your landlord would call and say, you know, I don't want you to pay any rent for the next five years just because I'm a nice guy and I like you. Uh, it's, it's unimaginable, but that's, you get to do that in parable. You can make up things that could never happen like 10,000 talent debts and things like that. And so you've got this amazing story, but this is also where it ties into the gospel of Luke. And when Jesus began his ministry, he's reading from the prophecies in the Old Testament. And in, when he goes into the synagogue in chapter four, verse 18, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recovery of the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Who knows what occasion in the life of Israel that is describing? It begins with J. Jubilee. The Jubilee was something that God had in the Old Testament, that every 50 years, all debts were canceled, and slaves were all released and set free. And all that was a picture of what Messiah was to bring. So the parable is really... Uh, it, 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 things like that do happen when it's God. And when his people are being obedient, they reflect that. And so Jesus is the one who has come to bring the Jubilee, to cancel the debts. And so this is something amazing. But again, it's, it's, it's making, this parable is making one particular point. And you say, well, why? It's fairly obvious that the 50 smaller debt, 50 denarii debt probably represents the woman and the 500 represents Simon, but that doesn't sound right because Simon's a big sinner too. I think what that is is that probably the lesser debt for Simon represents what Simon thinks of himself. You know, I'm a 50 denarii debtor. She's a 500 denarii debtor. Um, I mean, elsewhere, Jesus says it's 10,000 talents, which would be you know, billions and billions of dollars. In reality, this is where the parable falls short. Even 10,000 talents is not enough. We all owe an infinite debt, but what's common to the parable is it's a debt we can't pay. And that's the point. But, but what it's really getting to, and this is the, the, the main focus of the parable, 
And it's when Jesus answers the question, he, that's, we know that's what he's getting at. He says, which of them would love him more? That's the point of the parable, is that who will be more grateful? And in the parable, the lesser debtor is forgiven, but Simon actually is not. The unrepentant Pharisee is not forgiven, and his attitude proves it. I guess I should add one other thing. Likewise, God's forgiveness of us is different than the parable because in the parable, the guy just says, fine, you don't have to pay me back. We know from what we've been singing today, we've read in the scriptures, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. That Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Our debt wasn't just God saying, okay, I forgive you, it's canceled. Our debt had to be paid with the price. But again, the point of the parable is this one thing, is that if you realize you've been forgiven a great debt, you will be very, very grateful. And then Simon begrudgingly acknowledges, well, I suppose the one who, who forgave, whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus explains his meaning. He said, the way, Simon, the way you've treated me shows you don't love me. You don't get it. But her passionate expression of loving gratitude shows she loves Jesus very much. He's, he defends her. But Jesus sees her not as she was, which is all Simon can see. Jesus sees her as she now is. Makes me think of 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. Every category of sin from drunkard to immoral, every idolatrous, all of that is over. And we are new creatures in Christ when God saves us. She is a new woman. Now, I think there are a couple things also very important about what Jesus is implying concerning himself. He's saying... For a woman like that to pour expensive perfume on my feet and weep and cleanse my feet and show such gratitude, that's appropriate. Now, I can tell you, if you did that for Kurt or Steve or me or anybody else here, it would be totally inappropriate, right? You know, if somebody came up to me and started you know, pouring thousands of dollars worth of perfume on my feet and praising me, I, I would jump even more than I did in Spain. That would totally inappropriate. I'm a man. But see, Jesus is implicitly showing his deity, it's right to worship me. I am worth this, is what he's saying. None of us could say that but him. The other thing, of course, which we're going to get to when he says, your sins have been forgiven. Verse 48, this has come up before in Luke's gospel. Only God can forgive sins. So he's, he's teaching those who will listen what he is about. And... He, he reassures the woman. Now, 
I'll, I'll read verses 48 to 50, then I'm going to raise the most difficult question in the passage. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, some have twisted this passage, and it's actually interesting. Roman Catholic commentators try to use this passage as a proof text for a faith which is filled out by works of love. And so they would, it would make it sound like that because she loved Jesus in this way, because she did this for Jesus, that's how she got to be forgiven. And this is where the Greek language can help you a little bit in verses 47 and 48. And the New American Standard Version brings this out. The New International Version brings this out. The ESV, I don't believe, does as well. And that is, it says, her sins which are many have been forgiven. And that's in the perfect tense in the Greek language. Perfect tense means something that has already happened in the past with ongoing effect. And so what Jesus is saying, not that because she showed me this love, I will now forgive her. He's saying, because I have forgiven her, she is showing me this love. You see how important that is? And that's exactly what the parable is saying, right? In the parable, the person is not grateful in order to be forgiven. The person is grateful because he has been forgiven. The one who has forgiven the 500, 50, 10,000, infinite debt, whatever it is, as a result is grateful. You don't earn forgiveness by loving Jesus. You love Jesus because he freely forgave you. That's plainly the point of the parable, that forgiveness precedes love. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And so this woman, and this is why I say sometime before this day, I'm, I'm very certain she heard the gospel. She believed the gospel. She was already a forgiven sinner. And, and now when she sees Jesus on this occasion, it's like Mary in John 12, already a believer. She so loves Jesus. Here's this woman who has been used by men, rejected by the culture. Here is someone who has forgiven her, someone who has loved her with a perfect love. She loves him so much. Because of all she's received from him, her debt has been paid. She pours out her love in worship. That's actually what we're here to do today, isn't it? Why do we come here today? Why aren't we eating lunch right now like everybody else? We're here to worship Christ. We're here as people who have been forgiven, whose debt has been paid, to adore him in song and prayer and the reading and proclamation of his word and the more we appreciate and understand the greatness of our debt. Do you understand that you've been forgiven a great debt? He who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Do you love Christ much because you know you've been forgiven much? And Jesus, I think in reassuring her, say, your sins have been forgiven. It's not, I forgive them now. I'm declaring they've already been forgiven. Your, and verse 50 also brings it out. He says, your faith has saved you. She wasn't saved by her work of pouring out perfume and doing all that stuff. It was believing in Christ, the Savior of sinners, that she was forgiven. And now she can go in peace. She, goes in, she still goes into a community that probably looks down on her, but she is no longer the woman she used to be. And now she can have peace. That's also very reassuring. You... I guess as Christians now, we're looked upon 
by our culture, well, that woman was looked upon by Simon the Pharisee, but you know, whatever, however people think of us, it doesn't matter if we've been accepted by Christ or for your past sins that other people won't let go of, and yet Christ has forgiven them. And the shame she felt is completely removed in her knowledge of Christ. So a few concluding applications, and one would just be to go back that every one of us here today is either like Simon or we're like the woman. Maybe we're all a little bit like Simon, but hopefully we're becoming like the woman. Some of us think we're good. Some of us, I mean, it's actually so much human nature is just you look, you can always find people worse than you. Even people who don't believe we believe at all, they're judgmental of the pro-life people because pro-choice is a moral cause. They're judgmental of, you know, whatever cause, you know, they, everybody has a morality, everybody's judging everybody else. The gospel humbles us. Caroline's testimony, uh, I was, Caroline had been friends since we were 15 years old in high school. And she would say she probably became converted after we'd started dating in college. I thought she was already a Christian. But her testimony is actually she was always a good girl. She would do the right thing. She made good grades. She obeyed her parents. She was moral. She did all this stuff, and it was only, she says, because I taught her total depravity, hopefully by Bible and not by action, um, she began to understand herself to be a great sinner who needed saving, and that's when she was converted, when she stopped seeing herself as better than everybody else and saw herself as a sinner who as much needed saving as anybody else, that's when God saved her. People like Simon desperately need saving. The older brother is the one who comes out of the prodigal son story looking bad, he never gets it. We can be the older brother. We can be Simon. And we need to realize, I love how Spurgeon puts it too. Let's say you never lived that way. Let's say you never had that immoral lifestyle. You never did do the drugs and the alcohol and evil that everybody else does. God has saved you from that just as much and you should be grateful. All of that is within you apart from the grace of God. And if he even before your conversion restrained you from that, it's because he protected you from it, not because you're a good person. Of course, then you were given over to your sins of self-righteousness, which are just as offensive to him. Jesus had an easier time with the immoral woman who was broken over her sin than the very moral man who could look at the Ten Commandments externally and feel very good about himself, and yet his heart was hard. And so we today should be like that woman. We should be like her in the sense of saying, what an amazing thing that God would save a great sinner like me. What an ama- and, and we should be glad, we should be glad to take the Lord's Supper and remember the way we were saved. We should be glad to offer praise and thanksgiving to Him. And then we should want to serve Him. We should want to serve Him. You know, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There are all kinds of things people are doing today in church, trying to get people to do more stuff for Jesus. And uh, there are various motives in the Bible. And uh, there's, there's a lovely section by J.C. Ryle on this passage where he says, the only way to make men holy is to teach and preach the free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The secret of being holy ourselves is to know and to feel Christ has pardoned our sins. Peace with God is the only root that will bear the fruit of holiness. Forgiveness must go before sanctification. That what's going to stir our hearts to obedience, to service, to love for Christ, I mean, the Bible does warn us of consequence, but that's like 
an inferior motivation. Sometimes I need that too. But what's going to stir you up to serve Christ well, to worship Christ well, to give up that besetting sin, to grow in your love for Christ, to be more faithful? It's to consider what he has done for you. I love the prayer of Paul for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, where he just says, praying that God would strengthen us in the inner man to be able to grasp the height, the length, the breadth of the love of Christ. And then that's how he can end the prayer, saying, now him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we have, beyond all that we ask or imagine, to him be the glory that it's, it's being like this woman and, and comprehending what he has done for us, the forgiveness we've received, the more you grasp your own depravity, your own sinfulness, your own former lostness. And the more you grasp what has been paid to save you, the grace shown to you, the more you will love him, the more you want to obey him. And I'll make one other application. When Ephesians says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God and Christ has forgiven you. If you understand what Christ has done for you, you're going to be a gracious person. You'll no longer be like Simon looking down upon people who aren't as good as you. If there's any difference in you, it's solely the grace of God. But then it's, it's knowing that forgiveness. It's being forgiven the infinite debt of our own sin that makes us a gracious people and looking upon the sin of others. I guess very last of all, that for some of you, especially thinking of some of our dear children, These are things familiar to you. And probably living in a Christian home, you've not been able to get into that much trouble yet like that woman did. But don't be like Simon. Look to Christ and believe upon him. Confess yourself to be the sinner you know you are and receive his forgiveness by grace through faith now that God can save you as he has saved you. He can save you from all those sins in your life that never have to happen as you turn to him at a young age and walk with him, but walking humbly, knowing that solely by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand the magnitude of the debt of our sin. Help us to understand the great price that was paid to forgive us. Help us not to be like Simon. Help us to be like the woman who loves the Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.